Welcome to the Heavy Duty Parts Report. This podcast is presented by the Heavy Duty Consulting Corporation and hosted by our CEO, Jamie Irvin. At the Heavy Duty Consulting Corporation, we work with manufacturers, distributors, and repair shops who want to grow their business. Do you have a problem that you would like some help with? We have developed fault codes for heavy duty parts businesses, just like they have for commercial trucks. Find out how many fault codes your business has and how you stack up against dozens of other heavy-duty parts businesses. Head to heavydutyconsulting.com and schedule a meeting with us today. All right, let's start this episode. You're listening to the Heavy Duty Parts Report. I'm your host, Jamie Irvin, and this is the place where we have conversations that empower heavy-duty people. Welcome to another episode of the Heavy Duty Parts Report. I'm your host, Jamie Irvin, and I'm actually pretty excited about today's episode. Why? Well, in the past, we've talked about bushings. We've talked about polyurethane, the pros and cons of them. We've talked about black rubber. You know, really, when you're buying bushings for suspension and for your truck and trailer, there there really is a time and place for both styles of bushings. But have you ever given some thought as to where the rubber in the black rubber bushing comes from? I hadn't really thought about it. And while I was in Las Vegas at Apex this fall, I had a chance to talk to someone who not only manufactures the bushings, but also has the farms where they have the orchards that produce the rubber. So we're going to learn all about that in today's episode. It's going to be a great episode. To help me with that, I not only have our featured guest, but I also have our podcast director, Diana Cudmore, with me once again. Diana, welcome back to the show. Hey, Jamie. How's it going? It's going well. It's going well. So in preparation for this episode, it was kind of fun to learn about where rubber comes from. So we're going to talk about that. But before we get into that, maybe you could set up the conversation that we had. Who was our guest? Uh, What's the company? So we got to speak with Matthew Perkins. He is the director of sales for North America at Manson's. Yeah, Diana, I was very excited when I saw in the list of people that I was going to be interviewing at Apex this company, Manson's, and I found out who they were and what they did. So why don't we listen in to the first part of that interview? And then we've got some extra things to talk about, don't we? Yes. So we're at Apex in Las Vegas, Apex 23, and we had a chance to stop by the Manson's booth and to talk to Matthew Perkins. Welcome to the Heavy Duty Parts Report. Very glad to have you here. Thanks, Jamie. Glad to be here. So admittedly, I've sold parts for a long time. I don't know a lot about your company. So I was excited about the opportunity to uh, introduce our audience to Manson. So first of all, uh, let's just talk a little bit about when the company was founded. So 1956. 1956. uh, We're privately held, based in Mumbai, India. Third generation of private owners. Growing organization. So global, selling into 65 countries um, globally. Um, Focus on tier one, OEM, and aftermarket solutions. Okay. Okay. So, uh, a global footprint. You're responsible with, you know, just the small part of the world called the U.S. and Canada. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> so, how do you take your products to market? Um, so, really, Manson's is a supplier to the supplier in the U.S. A yeah. lot of the things that we do are behind the scenes and tier one. Um, while we do have an aftermarket presence with our Manson's brand, it's really not as pronounced as it is in the rest of the world. Okay. So, okay. that's one of our, our considerations for the future. Trying to grow that aftermarket brand. Yeah. So, with the aftermarket, you've got your traditional distribution model. You've got to get inventory in the hands of, of the people who need it, right? The people fixing the trucks and right. trailers. Um, most people, when they want 
want to manufacture parts. They don't come to the market and say, hey, we're not quality, right? High quality is always a consideration, especially with work vehicles. Yes. So how does your company approach that to try to ensure that the products you're putting in the hands of customers is is that high quality? Yeah, so I think a lot of um, what we've done over the years is we've learned from the tier one suppliers as they've came in and and said, hey, we need this to be this and and, we need the product to be at this level. And so it really helps when they come in and help qualify our labs. We're ISO certified, we're IATF certified, right? So all of the things that you would expect to see of a tier one supplier, um, you know, it's really just about, you know, focusing on the little things and and being consistent and putting quality in product. That's fantastic. So um, give our audience a bit of an overview of the types of products we're talking about. Yeah, so our main focus is uh, NDH, or rubber, noise, vibration, and harshness products. And then so from there, um, we just vertically integrated. So right there, Matthew mentions that they have a vertically integrated company. Jamie, can you tell me a little bit about what that means? Okay, so I think when it comes to these kinds of terms that we use in the industry, they often can mean slightly different things to different people. But typically speaking, we have to think about the way that the supply chain works. So you have manufacturers of products, and you start with the OEM, the original equipment manufacturers, and they are the ones that assemble the equipment, but they don't manufacture every single piece and part that goes on that piece of equipment. So there are parts manufacturers that are also considered tier one who supply parts to those original equipment manufacturers. And then oftentimes those manufacturers have um, an aftermarket line or uh, they have products for second and third owners that they distribute. Not only their tier one products will go through the dealership groups and their aftermarket line will go through the aftermarket distributors, people like HDA Truck Pride's uh, members. And so you end up with tier one, tier two, you can even have tier three manufacturers, but typically speaking, once you move out of tier one and you get into tier two, tier three manufacturers, these people are only manufacturing products for the aftermarket. They have no real connection to the original equipment manufacturer. So you can think about it in the terms of in the traditional distribution model, you have a group of manufacturers supplying the original equipment manufacturer, and you have a larger group of manufacturers supplying the dealerships and the distributors for that second, third, and fourth owner. And and in traditional distribution, those manufacturers did not sell to the end user. So they didn't sell to the fleet. They didn't sell to the owner operator. They didn't sell to the repair shop who was doing uh, repairs for smaller fleets in a local regional area. They only sold to either the manufacturer themselves or their dealership groups or aftermarket distributors. And so you created these steps in the traditional distribution model that took products from the original manufacturer all the way through to the end user. A vertically integrated company is someone who tries to go from the manufacturing of the product all the way through to selling to the end user. And they eliminate, or at least they uh, have a channel that bypasses the traditional distribution that happens at the dealership level and the distributor level. I see. So why would a company want to be vertically integrated? Well, every step in the supply chain creates a cost center for the end user. And so if you think about one, two, and three steps to get products into the hands of the end user from the manufacturer, everybody has to make a markup to make profit. Uh, That inflates the price to the end user. So if I'm a manufacturer who wants to vertically integrate, 
one of the things I might be trying to do is I might be trying to maximize my profits while at the same time lowering the cost to the end user. Now, just because a manufacturer talks about being vertically integrated doesn't mean that they don't respect the distribution model. And it doesn't necessarily mean that they're going out into the market and, you know, slashing prices. Uh, There are a growing number of manufacturers that are running both of these models concurrently, and they do a lot to manage channel conflict. And one of the ways that they do that is that they try to price protect their distribution so that basically whoever the end user chooses, the price is going to be relatively the same. But you can imagine for the manufacturer uh, in that scenario, their profit margin is going to be um, much larger, although the volume is going to be much smaller. So when they are running these dual channels where they're going through traditional distribution, they're selling high volume, low margin to the distributor, and they're selling high margin, low volume to the end user. And I would imagine too, Jamie, that for a product that needs to be very high quality and really have super tight tolerances, it needs to last forever, right? Especially when you're looking at something that's generally made of one raw material like rubber, it would make sense for a company to completely be in control of the entire supply chain from raw material to product, essentially. Does that make sense? Well, there certainly is an upside to that uh, in that you can you have very good controls over supply. You have good controls over quality. You're not dependent on other people to, you know, to do their part to, to successfully deliver your product. Um, the, the downside of that too, though, may be that you have increased costs, you have increased infrastructure that is needed, and you have to be um, masters of multiple disciplines. So I, I think of other manufacturers who have been on the show, like Sampa, who's also been a sponsor of our show. You know, they control every aspect of manufacturing. I think the only thing that they don't manufacture themselves is perhaps a little bit of the the hardware, the nuts and bolts. Everything else they control. And there's big upside to that. For example, during COVID, they were able to maintain inventory levels because they controlled raw material. In the case of Manson's, they also control raw material. This is a big upside. But again, there's there's a cost to this and and all of that has to be weighed and if you don't have the discipline and you don't have people who really have mastery over that discipline then sometimes it makes sense to partner with someone and and assemble components so these are just decisions that every manufacturer has to make and there's definitely pros and cons to both yeah that makes perfect sense and manson's decided to vertically integrate so that means they own everything every part of their supply chain from the literal rubber trees that they get the rubber from all the way up to the product. So let's hear more about them. We genuinely own the, the plantation that you're pulling the rubber sap out okay. of the tree. Um, we process that, you know, we, we formulate our own blends. And then as the years have went on, we've went, okay, so we've got to do this casting or this fabrication. And so we've went and invested into those plants and bought those or, you know, grown them ourselves. But so just continuing to vertically integrate. So seven, seven manufacturing facilities, 750 people. We're going to take a quick break to hear from our sponsors. We'll be right back. This episode of the Heavy Duty Parts Report is brought to you by Find It Parts, your ultimate destination for heavy duty truck and trailer parts. Discover a vast range of parts at finditparts.com. Don't spend hours a day looking for parts. Instead, visit finditparts.com and get them right away. Okay, so we're back in studio right now. And when you're recording live on the trade show floor, 
you do the best that you can, but sometimes you don't have the time to really go deep on certain aspects of the conversation. Diana, Matthew said that Mansons owns their own plantations, and that's how they control that part of the manufacturing process. They actually own the farms that produce the raw materials. So I was really interested in learning more about this, and I asked you to do some research because I thought maybe our listeners would be interested as well. What is involved in making rubber? I kind of like went down the rabbit hole with researching how they make rubber, right? So if you think you're a Canadian, you know all about how they make maple syrup, I'm assuming. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> so the hey, way- Hey, don't, don't laugh. I've tapped the maple trees myself and actually been, uh, you know, and as a kid, we actually did uh, actually tap the trees and get the maple syrup. And so I, I am aware of it. <laughs> <laughs> so basically all the stereotypes about Canada are true. <laughs> oh, absolutely. I'm going to play hockey in a couple of minutes. <laughs> Okay. So anyway, just like maple syrup, the workers at the rubber plantation, they actually cut the bark and then they collect the sap and the sap is called latex, right? We've all heard of like latex gloves, latex balloons. Um, So they collect the sap just like in making maple syrup. And then when they've collected enough, they put it into a big vat. I know that during the pandemic, a lot of us made sourdough bread and another one of those trends was uh, making your own cheese. Okay. So similar to making cheese, they add an acid into the latex sap, and that makes the rubber coagulate just like cheese would co- uh, coagulate in the way. It's exactly the same thing. So I thought that was really cool. And that again, that process is called coagulation. Is it is it just a called a rubber tree, or is there like a technical name for it, or? So it's actually really cool. There are 2,500 different uh, types of plants and trees that produce latex, but generally they use what's called the rubber tree. But another thing I didn't know is that the dandelions in your uh, in your front yard, hopefully not in your front yard, uh, in your front yard, uh, if you pick them, you'll notice there's like some white sap. That's latex too. Isn't that crazy? So I, I always thought latex was a synthetic product. I didn't realize it was a natural product. Um, that's really interesting. So the rubber tree is the common name for it. Over 2,000 types. That's that's crazy. Is the rubber tree native to just India or is it found elsewhere? So the common rubber tree is actually native to South America in the Amazon region. But because the climates are similar, rubber trees grow really well in India. And as we said, there's over 2,000 species, so uh, there are other plants that make rubber, but this rubber tree that's been bred specifically for creating rubber really th- thrives in India. So I can't imagine that you just get the sap from the tree and then it's ready to go and be used in a heavy-duty application in like a truck or trailer suspension. So what do they do to make the, the product uh, more able to withstand the demands of heavy-duty? So the first thing that they do is they make it into black rubber and they do that by adding black carbon. This strengthens the rubber and that means that it can be used in something like suspension components, bushings, etc. But the really cool thing is back in 1839, a man named Charles Goodyear was playing with some rubber trying to figure out what to do with it and he dropped it on the hot stove. And he realized that the rubber which had then been cooked turned into a very strong leather-like substance. 
And that was back in 1839. And that was how the Goodyear Tire Company got started. Now, of course, they do this on purpose. They cook the rubber, uh, essentially, and they make it stronger. And that process is called vulcanization, which is just a really cool name. And immediately makes me think of Live Long and Prosper, but that's for another conversation and probably a different <laughs> podcast altogether. Diana, that is truly fascinating. Thank you uh, so much for going deep on that and doing some extra research. And I'm assuming this Goodyear fella just happened to start a, t- a company that made tires and eventually made airbags and other rubber products. This is really important, I think, though, to to see that like when it, when it comes to parts manufacturing, product differentiation is truly a challenging thing to achieve. And I just find it fascinating that here this company has has taken this extra step of um, investing in plantations, and this has really uh, enabled them to truly differentiate themselves. So let's get back to our conversation with Matthew from Manson's. Yeah, so give me a, a few of the, the products where these rubber products end up and, and how are they used in the industry? Yeah, so we're going to, we're going to um, focus on the suspension components. Yeah. We're going to focus on engine mounts, uh, transmission mounts. We're going to focus on um, cab mounts, kingpins, um, as well as any type of bracketry like to hang the suspension as well. Um, we focus on uh, drums, on wheel hubs. I mean, it's just really broad product. Broad right? product, yeah. When, when we were going through the supply chain uh, collapse during COVID, that yeah. was obviously a very uh, regular subject on our show. Yeah. How did owning the plantations impact your ability to actually produce product during that time? Was there a difference with your company than some of the others? I, I think so. And I think being an Indian-based company versus a Chinese-based company, right? I mean, we, we just seem to be, you know, able to to continue to produce the product, right? And so um, not only produce it, but but store it, right? Because that's a big thing too. You know, you have to have inventory. And, and so with a lot of companies running, you know, leaner uh, organizations, right? Not having that availability. Um, for us with a privately held owner, right? He was able to, to say, hey, we need to have that investment in inventory and supply the market. Yeah, that makes sense. Well, and anybody wanting to buy these products then can have confidence that you'll have the inventory and be able to supply. So that's important. So Jamie, Mansis is based in India, and we know that there are a lot of companies that are based in China. So for someone who's trying to decide where they want to buy their suspension components and their bushings, why should they choose an Indian-based company like Mansis over a Chinese-based company? That's a pretty complex question, uh, and there's a lot of really strong opinions about this. So let's just Let's just look at at some facts. So one, we know that there are heavy tariffs now in place from anybody who's importing from China. This dramatically affects cost. There is also the real possibility of geopolitical conflict in Taiwan with China and perhaps with the United States. And so that creates uh, uncertainty. And, and I've been talking to manufacturers in China as well as manufacturers. And I've had the opportunity, even as as late as when we were at Apex, to talk to manufacturers from China and also people who import and distribute products here in North America. I think everybody's pretty nervous about that right now. Now, India is a little bit different. Uh, Obviously, with China, we know that they're a communist country. India is a country that was colonized by Britain, but there is close ties with Britain and the Commonwealth. And as of the time of this recording, you know, there's been some indication that India maybe is sitting on the fence as to as to which uh, superpower they might back in a in a in a large scale conflict. 
we saw them uh, you know with with Russia and Ukraine they they didn't necessarily jump to supporting the United States and and Britain and uh, the commonwealth countries like Canada and Australia although they haven't also really opposed them either so at least geopolitically for the moment it does look like India would be a a safer bet if you were going to uh, buy products from from overseas and and what they call offshore of course, I think manufacturers need to think very carefully about who they choose to partner with. And I think that um, nearshoring and U.S. manufacturing is always going to be the safest bet, but there's a lot of cost that comes with that. So if you are looking to partner with a company, someone who is a reputable company like Manson's and someone that is uh, India-based may be a safer bet over uh, someone from South Asia where you know the the reality the sad reality is is that at least at the time of this recording the possibility of a geopolitical conflict similar to Ukraine in Taiwan is still a very real possibility so we just we live in dynamic times and um you know we we don't really comment on politics here on this show but you can't ignore geopolitical conflicts and issues because they have a significant impact on the supply chain as you know, as we've seen from from history, and as even we saw during COVID, right? Once those supply chains start to collapse for whatever reason, it has a massive impact on us and our economy and our ability to get the products we need to keep trucks and trailers rolling on North American soil. Absolutely, thank you for that insight. All right, let's get back to our interview with Matthew from Mansons. Uh, let's talk a little bit about how equipment is changing. A lot. Yeah. <laughs> a commercial truck, uh, the, what, it, what it was 25 years ago when I came in the business and what it is today is very different. How do you see uh, going forward your company being able to meet the challenges of the changing equipment? Yeah, I think um, one of the things that we have the luxury of is because we work on the, the tier one side, as you know, as well as the aftermarket side, we get to see the original design and then we get to evaluate how a lot of products fail. And so anytime that you get both views, right, you can really start to, you know, take those lessons learned in the OE, plus having that, you know, very windshield view, right? You, you turn around and you just start to, you know, incorporate that type of process into the aftermarket parts. Yeah, and that is something that um, is, you know, if you're a remanufacturer, let's say you get to do a lot of failure analysis but you don't have the benefit of knowing what what the tier one originally right, right and what they're thinking that, so you get both sides of that view that that's uh, something I, I would say that is a significant difference yeah, absolutely and, and you see that in, in, in product development right is, is you know you're, you're looking at it and you're constantly saying okay so what application does this fit what's it going to go through and and what lessons have been learned through the organization through 65 years that we yeah. can apply to these new products going forward right so as you think to the future and you want to expand on the aftermarket side how are you going to support the people who are distributing your product and then the those people that they sell to right the the backbone of society our trucking industry yeah so um everywhere else in the in the world we have you know our, our sales teams and and you know warehousing and things like that in the u.s because everything that we do is really behind the scenes um we we run a, a lot leaner ship right and so you know currently we're we're out looking for you know new people to add to the team adding a product manager adding a couple sales managers and just to be able to get closer to those customers because ultimately as we know our customers are great the distributors the the manufacturers the the tier ones, but ultimately it goes down to that fleet level, right? Yeah. You've got to be able to get out there and, and service those guys. Yeah, and all the years I sold parts, the favorite part of my job. So I started in manufacturing, then I went into distribution. So what I really enjoyed was taking manufacturing reps out into the field and being able to talk directly with the yeah. fleets, getting that feedback from 
ground zero, as it were, is essential. Absolutely. When you ask, you know, hey, what went wrong or how did this fail? And you can actually, you know, come up with a, a solution for that. I mean, it just means so much, right? That, I mean, that's true value in the industry. Yeah. And one of the things that we focus on on the heavy duty parts report a lot is the subject of lowering total cost of operation. Mm -hmm. So how does your company approach that and help fleets to do that? Yeah. So I, I hate to help fall back on the old trusty answer, but the reality is that it is about quality, right? If you produce a high quality part and you can lessen the cycles that people need to replace that part, it lasts longer. Yeah. I mean, it really comes down to that. Yeah, absolutely. Well, if people would like to learn more about your company, we uh, have put the link in the show notes. Go to mansons.in. They're an Indian company, so mansons.in. Links will be in the show notes. Matthew, thank you so much for being on the show. I really appreciate you taking some time. We're at the trade show. It's busy, and it was really appreciated. Hey, I appreciate you stopping by. You guys have a great day. HDA Truck Pride is the heart of the independent parts and service channel. They have 750 parts stores and 450 service centers conveniently located across the U.S. and Canada. Visit heavydutypartsreport.com slash HDA Truck Pride today to find a location near you. Again, that's heavydutypartsreport.com slash HDA Truck Pride and let the heart of the independent service channel take care of your commercial equipment.